0: Hello and welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 329. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Ready to have your minds blown this week in that mind-blowy kind of mind-blowing way that only good hard science fiction can deliver? I hope so, cause that's what we're throwing at ya. We bring you The Gravity Mine by Stephen Baxter. Stephen Baxter is an acclaimed, multiple award-winning author whose many books include Zeely Sequence, The Time Odyssey Trilogy, written with Arthur C. Clarke, and The Time Ship, a sequel to H.G. Wells' classic, The Time Machine. His books have won several awards, including the Philip K. Dick, the John W. Campbell, and the British Science Fiction Award, and have been nominated for several others, including the Arthur C. Clarke, the Hugo, and the Locus Awards. He's published over 100 SF short stories, many of which have gone on to win prizes, and the Gravity Mine was shortlisted for the Hugo Award in 2001. It first appeared in Asimov's April 2000. The story is read to you by Amy Sturgis. Amy's an author, educator, editor, speaker, and podcaster, with specialties in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and Native American studies. She lives with her husband, Dr. Larry M. Hall, and their best friend, Virginia the Boston Terrier, in the foothills of North Carolina. I first came across Amy while listening to the epic and awesome science fiction fancast Starship Sofa, as Amy's one of the regular contributors over there. Now, I love this sofa, and editor Tony Smith regularly brings a lot of good stuff to the table. Er, cushions over there, but Amy's essays and non-fiction chunks quickly started becoming the highlight of the show for me. Her regular Looking Back at Genre History segment on Starship Sofa is definitely worth checking out. It's engaging, well-articulated, and always fascinating. Amy Sturgis is the Neil deGrasse Tyson of science fiction, basically. Go subscribe to The Sofa and get hooked up. For now, though, I have much to tell you. Without further ado, we bring you The Gravity Mine by Stephen Baxter.
1: The Gravity Mine by Stephen Baxter Call her Anlik. The first time she woke, she was in the ruins of an abandoned gravity mine. At first... The community had chased around the outer strata of the great gloomy structure. But at last, close to the core, they reached a cramped ring. Here the central black hole's gravity was so strong that light itself curved in closed orbits. The torus tunnel looked infinitely long, and they could race as fast as they dared. As they hurtled past Fullerene walls, they could see multiple images of themselves a glowing golden mesh before and behind, for the echoes of their light endlessly circled the central knot of space-time. Just like the old days, they called, excited, just like the afterglow. Exhilarated, they pushed against the light barrier, and those trapped circling images shifted to blue or red. That was when it happened. This community was just a small tributary of the conflux. Isolated here in this ancient place, the density of mind already stretched thin. And now, as light speed neared, that isolation stretched to the breaking point. She butted off from the rest. Her consciousness made discreet, separated from the greater flow of minds and memories. She slowed The others rushed on without her, a dazzling circular storm orbiting the exhausted black hole. It felt like coming awake, emerging from a dream. Her questions were immediate, flooding her raw mind. Who am I? How did I get here? And so on. The questions were simple, even trite, and yet they were unanswerable. Others gathered around her, curious, sympathetic, and the race of streaking light began to lose its coherence. One of them came to her. Names meant little. This one was merely a transient sharpening of identity from the greater distributed entity that made up the community. Still, here he was. Call him Gidor. Anlik? I feel... odd, she said. Don't worry. Who am I? Come back to us. He reached for her, and she sensed the warm depths of companionship and memory and shared joy that lay beyond him, depths waiting to swallow her up, to obliterate her questions. She snapped, No! And willfully she sailed up and out and away, passing through the thin walls of the tunnel. At first, it was difficult to climb out of this twisted gravity well, but soon she was rising through layers of the structure. Here was the tight electromagnetic cage which had once trapped the spinning black hole like a dynamo. Here was the cloud of compact masses which had been hurled along complex orbits through the hole's ergosphere, extracting gravitational energy. It was antique engineering, long abandoned. She emerged into a blank sky, a sky stretched thin by the endless expansion of space-time. Ghidor was here. What do you see? Nothing. Look harder. He showed her how. There was a scattering of dull red pinpoints all around the sky. They are the remnants of stars, he said. He told her about the afterglow, that brief brilliant period after the Big Bang, when matter gathered briefly in clumps and burned by fusion light. It was a bonfire, over almost as soon as it began. The universe was very young. It has swollen some ten thousand trillion times in size since then. Nevertheless, it was in that gaudy era that humans arose. Us, Anlech. She looked into her soul, seeking warm memories of the afterglow. She found nothing. She looked back at the gravity mine. At its center was a point of yellow-white light. Spears of light arced out from its poles, knife-thin. The spark was surrounded by a flattened cloud, dull red, inhomogeneous, clumpy. The big central light cast shadows through the crowded space around it. It was beautiful, a sculpture of light and crimson smoke. This is Mine One, Gidor said gently, the first mine of all, and it is built on the ruins of the primeval galaxy, the galaxy from which humans first emerged. The first galaxy? But it was all long ago. He moved closer to her, so long ago that this mine became exhausted. Soon it will evaporate away completely. We have long since had to move on. But that had happened before. After all, humans had started from a single star and spilled over half the universe, even before the stars ceased to shine. Now humans wielding energy drawn from the great gravity mines on a scale unimagined by their ancestors. Of course, minds would be exhausted, like this one, but there would be other minds. Even when the last mind began to fail, they would think of something. The future stretched ahead, long, glorious. Minds flowed together in great rivers of consciousness. There was immortality to be had of a sort, a continuity of identity through replication and confluence across trillions upon trillions of years. It was... The conflux, its source, was far upstream. The crudities of birth and death had been abandoned even before the afterglow was over, when man's biological origins were decisively shed. So every mind, every tributary that made up the conflux today had its source in that bright, remote, upstream time. Nobody had been born since the afterglow. Nobody but Come back, Ghidor said. Her defiance was dissipating. She understood nothing about herself, but she didn't want to be different. She didn't want to be unhappy. There wasn't anybody who was less than maximally happy the whole of the time. Wasn't that the purpose of existence? So, troubled, she gave herself up to Ghidor, to the conflux. And, along with her identity, her doubts and questions dissolved. The universe would grow far older before she woke again. Flee! Faster! As fast as you can! There was turbulence in the great rushing river of mind, and in that turbulence here and there, souls emerged from the background wash. Each brief fleck suffered a moment of terror before falling back into the greater dreaming hole. One of those flecks was Anlik. In the sudden dark, she clung to herself. She slithered to a stop. Transient identities clustered around her. What are you doing? Why are you staying here? You will be harmed. They sought to absorb her, but fell back, baffled by her resistance. The community was fleeing in panic. Why? She looked back. There was something there in the greater darkness. She made out the faintest of patterns charcoal gray on black, almost beyond her ability to resolve it, a mesh of neat, regular triangles covering the sky. Visible through the interstices was a complex, textured curtain of gray pink light. It was a structure that spanned the universe. She felt stunned. Disoriented. It was so different from Mine One, her last clear memory. She must have crossed a great desert of time. But, she found, when she looked into her soul, her questions remained unanswered. She called out, Gidor? A ripple of shock and doubt spread through the community. You are Anlik. Gidor? "'I have Gidor's memories.' "'That would have to do,' she thought, irritated. "'In the conflux, memory and identity were fluid, distributed, ambiguous. "'We are in danger, Anlik. You must come.' "'She refused to comply. Stubborn. "'She indicated the great netting. "'Is that mine one?' "'No,' he said sadly. "'Mine one was long ago, child.' How long ago? Time is nested. From this vantage, the era of man's first black hole empire had been the springtime, impossibly remote, and the afterglow itself, the star-burning dawn, was lost, a mere detail of the Big Bang. What is happening here, Gidor? There is no time. Tell me! The universe had ballooned, fueled by time. And its physical processes had proceeded relentlessly. Just as each galaxy's star had dissipated, leaving a rump which had collapsed into a central black hole, so clusters of galaxies had broken up, and the remnants fell inwards to cluster scale holes. And the clusters, in turn, collapsed into supercluster scale holes, the largest black holes to have formed naturally, with masses of a hundred trillion stars. These were the cold hearths around which mankind now huddled. But, said Gidor, the supercluster holes are evaporating away, dissipating in a quantum whisper like all black holes. The smallest holes of stellar mass vanished when the universe was a fraction of its present age. Now the largest natural holes of supercluster mass are close to exhaustion as well, and so we must farm them. Look at the city. He meant the universe-spanning net, the rippling surfaces within. The city was a netted sphere. It contained giant black holes, galactic supercluster mass, and above. They had been deliberately assembled, and they were merging in a hierarchy of more and more massive holes. Life could subsist on the struts of the city, feeding off the last trickle of free energy. Mankind was moving supercluster black holes, coalescing them in hierarchies all over the reachable universe, seeking to extend their lifetimes. It was a great challenge. Too great. Somberly, Ghidor showed her more. The network was disrupted. It looked as if some immense object had punched out from the inside, ripping and twisting the struts. The tips of the broken struts were glowing a little brighter than the rest of the network, as if burning. Beyond the damaged network, she could see the giant coalescing holes, their horizons distorted, great frozen waves of infalling matter visible in their cold surfaces. This was an age of war, an obliteration of trillion-year memories, a bonfire of identity. Great rivers of mind were guttering, drying. This is the Conflux. How can there be war? Gidor said, We are managing the last energy sources of all. We have responsibility for the whole of the future. With such responsibility comes tension, disagreement, conflict. She sensed his gentle, bitter humor. "'We have come far since the afterglow, Anlik. "'But in some ways we have much in common "'with the brawling, argumentative apes of that brief time.' "'Apes?' "'Why am I here, Gidor? "'You're an eddy in the conflux. "'We all wake up from time to time. "'It's just an accident. Don't trouble, Anlik. "'You are not alone. You have us.' "'Deliberately, she moved away from him.' "'But I am not like you,' she said bleakly. "'I do not recall the afterglow. "'I don't know where I came from.' "'What does it matter?' he said harshly. "'You have existed for all but the briefest moments "'of the universe's long history. "'Has there been another like me?' "'He hesitated. "'No,' he said. "'No other like you there hasn't been long enough.' "'Then I am alone.' Anlik, all your questions will be over, answered or not, if you let yourself die here. Come now. She knew he was right. She fled with him. The great black hole city disappeared behind her, its feeble glow attenuated by her gathering velocity. She yielded to Gidor's will. She had no choice. Her questions were immediately lost in the clamor of community. She would wake only once more. Start with a second. Zoom out. Factor it up to get the life out of the Earth with that second glowing moment embedded within. Zoom out again to get a new period so long Earth's lifetime is reduced to the span of that second. Then nest it. Do it again. And again. And again. And again. Anlick for the last time, came to self-awareness. It was inevitable that, given enough time, she would be butted by chance occurrence, and so it happened. She clung to herself and looked around. It was dark here. Vast, wispy entities cruised across space-time's swelling breast. There were no dead stars, no rogue planets. The last solid matter had long evaporated, Burned up by proton decay, a thin smoke of neutrinos drifting out at light speed. For ages, the black hole engineers had struggled to maintain their cities. To gather more material to replace what decayed away, it was magnificent. Futile. The last structures failed, the last black holes allowed to evaporate. The conflux of minds had dispersed, flowing out over the expanding universe like water running into sand. Even now, of course, there was something rather than nothing. Around her was an unimaginably thin plasma, free electrons and positrons decayed from the last of the Big Bang's hydrogen, orbiting in giant, slow circles. This cold soup was the last refuge of humanity. The others drifted past her like clouds, immense, slow, coated in wispy, light-year-wide atoms, and even now the others clung to the solace of community. But that was not for Anlik. She pondered for a long time, determined not to slide back into the eternal dream. At length, she understood how she had come to be, and she knew what she must do. She sought out Mine One, the wreckage of man's original galaxy. The search took more empty ages. With caution, she approached what remained. There was no shape here, no form, no color, no time, no order, and yet there was motion. A slow, insidious, endless writhing Punctuated by bubbles which rose and burst, spitting out fragments of mass energy. This was the singularity that had once lurked within the great black hole's event horizon. Now it was naked, a glaring knot of quantum foam, a place where the unification of space time had been ripped apart to become a seething probabilistic froth. Once, this object had oscillated violently and savage tides, chaotic and unpredictable, had torn at any traveler unwary enough to come close. But the Singularity's energy had been dissipated by each such encounter. Even singularities aged. Still, the frustrated energy contained there seethed quantum mechanically, randomly. And sometimes, in those belched fragments, Put there purely by chance, there were hints of order, structure, complexity. She settled herself around the singularity's cold glow. Free energy was dwindling to zero, time stretching to infinity. It took her longer to complete a single thought than it had once taken species to rise and fall on Earth. It didn't matter. She had plenty of time. She remembered her last conversation with Gidor. Has there been another like me? No, no other like you. There hasn't been long enough. Now, Analek had all the time there was. The universe was exhausted of everything but time. The longer she waited, the more complexity emerged from the singularity, purely by chance. Much of it dissipated, purposeless. But some of the mass-energy fragments had sufficient complexity to be able to gather and store information about the thinning universe. Enough to grow. That, of course, was not enough. She continued to wait. At last, by chance, the quantum tangle emitted a knot of structure sufficiently complex to reflect not just the universe outside, but its own inner state. Annelick moved closer, coldly excited. It was a spark of consciousness, not descended from the grunting, breeding humans of the afterglow, but born from the random quantum flexing of a singularity, just as she had been. Annelick waited, nurturing, refining the rootless being's order and cohesion, and it gathered more data, develop sophistication. At last it, she, could frame questions. Who am I? Who are you? Why are there two and not one? Anlik said, I have much to tell you. And she gathered the spark in her attenuated soul. Together, mother and daughter drifted away and the river of time ran slowly into an unmarked sea.
0: And that was our story. Don't feel bad if you need a minute to digest all that. I can't think of many more stories that cram that much epicness into, ironically, such a relatively short time frame. Time and the framing of it certainly are relative, aren't they? Avant-garde composer John Cage, probably most well-known for his piece Four Minutes and Thirty-Three Seconds with a score that instructs the performers to be totally silent for the entire duration of the piece, Four Minutes and Thirty-Three Seconds, has another lesser-known piece for the organ called As Slow As Possible. It's eight total movements, and Cage's only specification for the entire tempo is a note to the performer to play As Slow As Possible. In 2001, in a cathedral in Halberstadt, Germany, a group of Cage admirers finally decided to do this thing right. The performance of As Slow As Possible began on September 5th, which would have been Cage's 89th birthday, and the opening rest of the piece had a duration of 17 months. So it wasn't even until February 5th, 2003, that the first audible music was actually heard from the piece. A weird G-sharpy chord with a B in it that sounds kind of like this. Beautiful, huh? That chord had to be sustained for over a frickin' year until July 5th of 2004. And of course, since nobody could ever sit at an organ and hold that cord for over a year and some change, little bags of sand were put on the keys and organ pedals to weigh them down and keep them sustaining the notes. Needless to say, people living nearby got pretty fed up hearing all this however you say, liberal-ass artsy bullshit in German, coming from the church next door every second of every day, month after month. So after enough complaints were registered, the organ was enclosed in a plexiglass case to cut down the sound. That Lieber-ass artsen-bullshiten, and and so to speak, has been going on in Halbertstadt ever since. A change of a single note on January 5th, 2006. Another few following in relative rapid succession four months later, in May. The next chord in July 2008. And it'll keep going this way. There are several websites you can listen to the current notes at. Until its glorious scheduled conclusion on September 5th, the year 2000 frickin 640. They've got it all mapped out, huh? But who can possibly tell how the world will hear those final chords, the year 2640? Just like if our existing knowledge of physics is correct, which it probably isn't, you can also try to map out the long-term future of the entire universe. We're 14 billion-ish years after the Big Bang right now, and stars are expected to keep forming for at least another 100 trillion years, at which point the supply of gas needed to keep new stars forming will be exhausted, and the universe will start to grow dark, with nothing but black dwarves, loose planets, and giant black holes in the center of each galaxy. Science fiction loves looking down that long, winding river of time at what human life might look like throughout all of this. Will our keys and our pedals have sandbags affixed to them? Will we have a plexiglass bubble over our heads? How will we keep our notes sustaining? Time, and everything, really, is relative. How do you think the full performance of John Cage's As Slow As Possible would sound to Anlick? Anyways, if you enjoyed our story this week, which I hope you did, remember The Travelcast runs off the generous support of listeners such as yourself. Consider making a donation to The Travelcast by going to our website, travelcast.org, and clicking on any of the support options there. You might consider signing up for a $10 a month automatic subscription, which gives you access to our premium content feed, Travelcast B-Sides, where we produce additional stories each month, have author interviews, fun videos, and all sorts of other exclusive content. We just put up an awesome story called A Statement in the Case by Theodora Goss. It's a great story and a great deal, and you're helping support your favorite speculative fiction e-zine week to week, helping us slouch yet another day towards the inevitable heat death of the entire universe. We greatly appreciate it. All right, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, for the second week in a row, Travelcast fan Brian with a Y with this one here. Every message he sent felt more like a farewell. With Earth 23 light years away, he would likely never hear back from her. character stories aren't all about the nad kicking pun at the end. You can do some pretty poignant and powerful things in that short, short lifespan. Give it a shot. 100 characters, not counting spaces. Post it in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org in the Twabble section. Maybe you'll be on the show next week. Follow us on Twitter for the winners early each week. Our Twitter name is at Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, The Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons attribution on commercial no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes if you get a chance. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Melissa McClanahan. Melissa Arts and Designs out of Cincinnati, Ohio, where she lives with her long-suffering husband and evil kitty overlord. You can find her work at liminalworks.net. Our program this week was brought to you by managing editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kire, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, there will be other minds.